good evening and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra and this is Renegade Roundtable. Last year, one of my favorite things that went down all year was, uh, you know, I saw history being made at a, a, a musical endeavor I had never ever even seen anyone attempt before. I'd never even been to a show at that legendary outdoor venue Red Rocks in Colorado before and finally got back there for this because King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard played three shows, almost three hours each with a 15-minute break in the middle, not one song repeated. And and even the third show, if I had not seen the first two, I would have been really happy with that show. I was anyway. I think the first one was my favorite, but I, I was just amazed at how good all of them were. And for anybody who knows this band, it was rising by leaps and bounds, the musical directions go all over the map. I got drawn in with an album called, partly called Mind Fuzz because there was a lot of Hawkwindy things in there, which I'm kind of a, a a sucker for. But then I find out, oh my God, they have all these other albums out. There's all these people who are into them. Where was I? And so, and, and sometimes they'll put out, oh, a mere five albums a year or something like that. And no two of them sound the same and good at all kinds of instruments per person, all kinds of different songwriting and a disproportionate amount of the songs are credited as, as written, produced, recorded, and mixed all by one guy and not just one kind of song, Stuart McKenzie. So guess who's here with us now? Stuart McKenzie. Thanks for coming on, mate. I'm very honored you'd do this. G'day, Jello, and thanks. You're way too, way too, way too kind to me. Thanks for coming to all the shows and having me on your podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean you kind of <laughs> sort of become my favorite band after all this. I mean, you know, so many different places to go, so many different cool things. Obviously, I like some of the albums more than other ones. But uh, how many more do you have in the can since you got home from tour? Uh, we, we don't have any in the can right now. Some Sometimes we do. Sometimes we sit on them for a while. Over the years, I've tried to figure out how to not sit on them for very long because, you know, it, it's, it's hard sitting on a record that's done. You get sick of it by the time it comes out. So we've tried to shorten that period where it's done and it isn't out as much as possible so you don't start second-guessing anything. Within dressing um, plants taking forever to make the records and stuff. Well, yeah, that's an, that's an issue which, um, you know, we have no solution for but nothing you can do about it. But we, we are working on two records kind of simultaneously at the moment. Um, they're like a... They're kind of linked um, thematically, um, but opposite to each other as well. Kind of been a nice project. M- musically opposites as well, or I'd say genre-wise opposites, but sharing uh-huh. some musical motifs. And so, yeah, thematically too opposite. They they both kind of tell a story, a bit of a narrative, but um, and they're kind of a, a unique sort of a narrative to each other. But there's there's tie-ins, and they're all kind of I've been calling it like a yin yang kind of thing. So right, they're sort of right. part of the same whole, but they're quite opposite as well. Much, I, I think this is not your first yin yang rodeo either, is it? <laughs> or but, is it? Well, not. Um, it's we have done this kind of thing a bit, but never to this sort of a uh, level of being kind of linked and working on two things at the same time. That um, we made KG and LW, which were together. They were they were like a right. like a double right. album split in half and. 
We made yeah. fishing for fishies and infest the rat's nest sort of simultaneously, and they were really different to each other, but oh, these yeah. are more linked than that. Well, the, yeah, that, that, when you are making that many albums at once earlier on, Fishing for Fishies, if I recall, is one of the more mellow ones, and Infest the Rat's Nest is the full-on heavy metal album all the way through. And that's interesting, you were doing both of those at the same time. <laughs> So do, do you, do you, when, you, when you come up with songs, do you kind of put them in mental piles or folders? This might go on this kind of an album someday. This might go here. Or do you set out ahead of time, now we're going to make a metal album. But Fishies is not going to be a metal album. Yeah, I think, I think it's a little, a little of both. Um, and for, for me, I'm usually probably in one of two modes. I'm either in, in, in like a throwing shit at the wall mode and i'm just riding i'm just limbs flailing yeah. just doing anything yeah, and everything yeah. a lot of the time i'll be doing that if i don't know what the next project is and i'm just trying stuff and just trying to find that spark of inspiration and then as that sort of progresses you know i might have two ideas that feel like they're similar to each other and they could be siblings or cousins on the same record they could be kind of bunched together and and then as it sort of forms or a record sort of forms or multiple records kind of form, then you sort of go into the other mode of creating more songs for the, creating more children for the, uh, you know, for the, for the record. Um, right, right. So you're working on two. Are there more already conceived and mostly laid out or not? No, I'd say at this stage um, we have some ideas for what we'd like to do next, uh -huh. but it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, we should make a record like this, or wouldn't it be fun if we had these kind of songs at a show, or or this particular song, which is a bit of an oddball on on a record that we have, is has been really fun to play. We should ma make some more songs like that or something. But that's kind of as far as we go beyond what we've kind of got inside. Right. Because night two at Red Rocks, you opened with a really good anthemic glam rock song. Oh yeah, what was that? I can't remember anymore. I can't remember the title either. But uh, I, 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 uh, I was just listening. I figured someday maybe I could link it all up with titles and albums if I had a a day or two to sit down. <laughs> Fix it all. Yeah, it, it would have done the Swede or Slade proud. I mean, no surprise. You write all well in all these other genres. So maybe. So I guess it doesn't sound like we're, we're going to get a whole glam rock album or a Neo Stooges one even anytime soon. Neo Stooges would be cool. I'd go for that. Um, no, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's sort of weird to think about um, us making records from a perspective of genre. I mean, it's never really the way, it's never really the way we've thought about it. I think huh. we're just kind of um, music fans. Like if you just right. looked in any of our record collections, it's just kind of what we listen to. And right, it's, right. it feels like the natural extension to um, make music like that. And, and obviously that is the way that people consume it or the way people think about it is, you know, this, this record is this kind of genre, right. but that's not been the way that we've thought about it. Not that huh. it's bad to think about it like that, but... Because one, one of you, when you were in San Francisco and I saw you there, and Infest the Rat's Nest came out at that show, oh yeah, the next one's going to be a metal album. So somebody was looking at that. It might have been Ambi, Ambrose Kinney Smith, the keyboardist, saxist, and soul singer extraordinaire in the band, uh, who, uh, who, who said, oh yeah, the, with all these new albums, we made an electronic one too, you know, which might have been Butterfly 3000 
in some people's minds. I don't know. So uh, if you're throwing stuff against the wall, which sounds like it's independent of the other ba- of the other band members, if you're trying to get stuff to bring in and jam on or not jam on and just do it, I don't I don't know. It, sounds, it seems like you construct songs in a number of ways. Do the do do the ideas come into your head? The melodies first and then you find them on the guitar or a keyboard and flesh it out from there or do you find them by playing around on your guitar and then oh this sounds good maybe i'll do this which way or do you do both i think that um over the years that's changed a lot um when i first started writing i didn't think about lyrics or the way the construction of language or really what i was kind of right. talking about very very much a little but it was less important than the than the melody and the way right. the kind of melody interfaced with the rhythm and the chords and stuff and that was what i was interested in and so the melody was in your head and then you made the chords or i think it would think? happen still both ways it would right. it would happen tinkering around on a guitar um and but yeah it would probably still happen both ways sometimes a melody first and and sometimes kind of the chords first and and find it but what was important was the architecture of the of the construction you know like every th- the the rhythm and the the way the the melody rhythmically fit into everything had to fit like a puzzle and make sense to to me at least and that was that was the way like a, most of the earlier kind of songs were written um but then over time it has been really important to experiment with the process and Almost every record that we've made has involved um, trying to write in a way that feels really uncomfortable or really hard or right or something. Yeah, there was an interview from a site, Total Guitar, which might be connected with Guitar World, guitarworld.com, where you said, I'm a big believer in writing on an instrument or you don't, writing on an instrument you don't feel comfortable on. Yeah. And you like piano because you could sketch parts for three people at the same time. Yeah, that's 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 true. I, I don't feel like I write a lot of songs on guitar anymore, actually. Um I still always play the guitar live and I, I love it. I feel easily more most at home on guitar. I probably will never in my life feel as comfortable making music on any other instrument. But I find um, I find it hard harder to write on guitar than, than in other instruments. And I don't think it's the guitar's fault. I think it's just the way I've learnt to play it and my mind is kind of stuck in, in certain patterns already. And I feel like I've already explored a lot of them. So yeah, even kind of thinking words first, or um, or si- like the singing, because sing- I I don't feel like I'm a natural singer in a lot of ways. That's always felt like something I had to work on and just think about. It doesn't come naturally like the guitar does. So that's right. been a lot, a lot of fun to kind for, of focus on that. The only thing I'm good for is the voice. I've never been any good at instruments, but I just have all these ideas, so I sing them to people. So everything starts in my head and needs to be transposed by my... Uh, colleagues whose patience I try to no end with this because then we got to find a key and make it all work and make all the parts fit and things like that and sometimes it doesn't fit their music theory training at all you know the chorus for California Uber Alice which came to me kind of through Japanese kabuki music of all things it's not a normal music theory pattern and that's that's really interesting it took months for Klaus and Ray and then our first drummer Bruce who went by Ted to get it right and finally it made perfect sense once they did. I love that Jello and I feel like that's part of the reason why the Dead Kennedys um, recordings were more um, like compositionally interesting than a lot of the other shit 
around at the time, I think. Would you say, would I mean, you say that's right? Well, I was trying for that, and the whole band was trying for that. I mean, Ray and Klaus are over 10 years older than me and did not come from as much as a punk background as I did, but had all these other areas of knowledge, including, you know, they were really good musicians, which I thought would be a hindrance, but it was <laughs> the opposite at the end of the day. And um, when I discovered surf instrumentals and things, they could already play them. So that became part of it too. And hardly anybody outside of Radio Birdman was doing that. And a lot of our best songs had more than one writer at the end of the day. And the one mm. true group written one was Holiday in Cambodia. And there's some other jams I would take back and add some more parts and bring it back in, including Moon Over Marin, which was mostly Ray. But uh, yeah, all kinds of different things. And, you know, I did, and also being like you, I guess, a very wide always widening my musical tastes and interests you know max magic accidents can even come from a you know what some people might dismiss as cocktail jazz or something but now it's called exotica like martin denny or les baxter and years after acquiring it just because it looked old i went back to my parents house and played the atlantic's bombora album that amazing australian oh yeah surf instrumental band who don't sound like any other surf instrumental band anywhere and all kinds of stuff began dancing in my head that had nothing to do with the melodies on the record sometimes a harmony or something better kicks in then you turn it off and you flip out of the walkman and just go with it that way okay back to red rocks three shows three different sets all played with real tightness and fire it was not like you hadn't just rehearsed it again that day how many of these songs do you have up your sleeve that you could just pull out and play at any time um i mean first first like first answer is we have had to abandon a certain d dedication to tightness actually in order to be able to do stuff like this i think i think uh if if i go back to 2017 or 2018 where the band was at at that at that point well let's say 2016 2017 we were trying to be tight and we weren't playing different sets every night and we were trying to do we we're trying to construct um a set which was really considered and just fucking blew your head off and was just 100 percent energy and then we were gone. Um, and that was really fun to do. But I think um, at least in the mode we're in at the moment, it's been trying to abandon tightness and trying to just listen to each other a little bit more and vibe and um, just improvise, um, let things stretch out where they want to stretch out and keep things short where they, when they should be, right. when they should be short right. too. But I think on that tour, we were playing about a hundred, 120 songs maybe, but that doesn't mean that we could play them on, on command at all times there are some okay. there are some songs we'd we'd comfortably go in with no rehearsals um and just figure it out you just you know you know what's happening three seconds ahead that's all you need to know and your, right. your brain figures right. it out in front of you um but there are a lot of songs where we we need a sound check and um you know we need that hour or whatever it is before the show to just yeah well, one of the red rocks people told me you were working on three or four of them before the second show at soundcheck trying to get them nailed back down but i didn't know which ones those were they all as i said they all took off they were well played they had fire you know and and maybe it was calves or others said so they felt you'd definitely gotten tighter with the current lineup. And I did think that the ante of the live energy and yes, the tightness going into that was higher at the Red Rock shows. It's like, oh my God, they were already so good. I flew out for these shows and I never do fly to any of my shows except Magma. But uh, this is noticeably better than the San Francisco shows. They're even better than before. So, Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Jello. That's, that's, that's real nice. Not, 
Not because you were less tight, but because you were more tight. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, in in my mind, at least the, my definition of tight, and this, I'm I'm probably thinking about hitting the the notes on my guitar in 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 time. I'm I'm doing it a lot less, you know, and I'm making a lot of more mistakes, and I'm going off the um, script a lot more, and I'm playing. Oh riffs. yeah, gee whiz, that was so noticeable. Ha ha. Yeah. Ha. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think. Uh, Maybe the main difference from that time when you saw us in San Francisco, 2019, I, I, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're taking a lot more risks and just we're just prepared to just go out into outer space a little bit further now and um, get a bit weirder. And um, we're happy to kind of like push push the audience a little bit. Doesn't always work. Oh, just I think test people. Be, I think you've got an audience eager to be pushed. And uh, the only one, the only one where it got a little lost, and one of you, it might have been Ambie again. I'm not sure. Said afterwards, yeah, well, this was an experiment. Was the boogie song? I think on night two that seemed to last about 20, 25 minutes when it could have been cut in half or more. And they're saying, yeah, it was an experiment. You know, we might not do it that way again. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the nature of it. You know, it's just you got to kind of be prepared to. Um, sometimes you get into a, a rhythm and you're just like, shit, I got to get out of this. <laughs> but you're kind of stuck into it. Um, and somehow yeah. manage to pull people out, or somebody does at different times, when it's not just one really gifted guitar player, but two or even three. And then there's Ambi on the keys, and, you know, and Cookie, Cook Craig, is on both keyboards, and often it seems third or the rhythm guitar that fleshes everything out when you and Joey may be soloing or playing off of each other, and he anchors more in with a bass. I don't know. But he doesn't always do that. So, uh, and I'm sure Cookie had his harmonica out during the boogie at some point too. But um, so now we will rewind further, further. You can see the thing swirling on the screen. Maybe what created you? Um, what is an interesting way to put it? Um, oh God. I mean, let's let's elaborate. What do you mean by me? Do you mean King Gizzard? Do you mean me? I mean. Let's start with you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, let's the, the the most basic way to answer it is my my mum and my dad. But um, I'm definitely a product of my parents. Um, they're both sweethearts, and um, I grew up in a household with a lot of like um, music and art was always very much encouraged and we're always encouraged to be creative and and stuff like that i also grew up in a small town like a small kind of country town and i think i got um that was anglesey right anglesey yeah and as i got a little bit older and started getting into music i mean i didn't pick up a guitar until i was 15 but i was very much into music and into art and being creative and and stuff at that at that age i think i got really bored like really bored and and you know the mo from the moment that I was I could I moved to Melbourne where there was kind of music scene happening and made lots of friends and you know from that from that point it was just it was just uh, all I've really done since then is play music you know it's, did, it's, did any of the other Giznots grow up in Anglesey too were you schoolmates or did you all meet later there wasn't a there was no high school in Anglesey so I went to um, high school in Geelong um, and I actually went to high school with Cookie I met him there which was cool. Lucas grew up in Geelong too. So we sort of met in Geelong circles. I must have met Cookie when we were about 14, maybe 13, something like that. 
Lucas, maybe about 15. Ambrose grew up in a small town in the same kind of area too. And Ambrose and Lucas played in a band together when they were kids. And, um, wow. and I played in the band with Cookie too. So when we were all kids, so we used to sometimes play shows together. This is when we were like teenagers, you know, and right. that sort of thing. Yeah. And at that time it was a, it was an, it was a, it was a reason to be able to get into the pub actually. Really, it was like we can get into the pub and we can try to sneakily drink some beers and no one's going to notice and, and stuff. And like that was all just big fun and games. Um, well, it sounds, sounds like your parents, you say they were very encouraging. They didn't mind having a creative kid and were able to handle a really bright kid and or kids. It sounds like you have siblings, too. Yeah, I have a little brother, too. Um, I have a little brother, too. And yeah, we, we had a really good childhood, honestly. It was it was real fun and real happy and it was just free you know it was quite a free um i don't know if they would describe themselves as hippies but they kind of i was about to ask that (laughs) i don't know if they would describe themselves as that but definitely definitely other people would describe them as hippies What what were their occupations um dad dad uh um worked a few different jobs a lot of different jobs when we were kids but um he worked for a environmental organization um Mm -hmm. doing greeny stuff and then he worked for um Ever have enough of that? Yeah, I agree. And um, and then he worked for the local water supply company, and then after that, he worked for the local kind of council in in small local government. Um, oh. And mum's a nurse, so you know, pretty regular folks. And your father taught you to play up guitar upside down. Ah, uh, you've definitely I done your digging. That. Definitely <laughs> done your digging. Yeah. So, so dad played guitar left-handed. Um, he um. He, I have told this story quite a few times, but it is a, it is a nice anecdote. He, um, he learned to play when we, my brother and I were kind of born. And he didn't kind of grow up playing, and, and it was sort of a... He always talked about it as a meditative thing, music as a, as a relaxation thing, which I never got as a kid because that's never what music was. Now music can be that for me a bit, but music was like a energy. It was a rev-up thing for me. It was like a... It was just like, let's get some... I don't know, let's go crazy and like headbang and stuff. That's what it was when I was younger. But music was like a yeah, meditation for dad. And so he would sing my brother and I to sleep every night. And But he'd be learning songs go. from a little songbook and they'd be mostly American, Americana folk songs, hmm. stuff like that in that canon. Uh-huh. Pete Seeger maybe or Bob yeah. Dylan probably. Yeah, Dylan and Neil Young and even like, you know, Cat Stevens and... A lot of stuff like that. Yeah, my mother and my parents had a great big book of American folk songs collected and then turned into sheet music and stuff by Alan Lomax, who I'm assuming you're familiar amazing. with. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Big, thick book. And I, I flipped through it once as a teenager when I was finally open to, oh, if they like it, maybe I can even like it too, which is not normal. But uh, although we all bonded on Carl Orff, the classical composer, they were mainly okay. classical people. But I saw in that book, there was House of the Rising Sun. It wasn't an original by the animals at all. It went much, much, much further back. So then when I was getting ready to cover that, which I've done with two or three people now, I, um, I, uh, Mom, where's that book? Where's that book? Oh, I threw it away. <laughs> Trying to pare down after my father died so I don't have to do all of it when we have to empty the house later. But, whoa, that book is gone. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, 
another thing I blundered into, as I say, anything besides press releases or whatever, if I Google King Gizzard and Lizard Wizard, there's a, not a lot on there. But one thing that did pop up was a video of four of you, maybe, which would be uh, Cavs and probably Lukey. I don't, it, it, was, it was an early exam at the <laughs> Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, where you were, I guess, working on Bachelor of Contemporary Music degree, or maybe all of you were. There we go. And hardly any, have you seen this? There's hardly anybody in the room, and it's total garage rock. I have maybe. seen this. I have seen this, and um, yeah, it has been um, shared around our the band's um, chats quite a, quite a few times. It's only recently surfaced, I think, this video. And it is cool to see, honestly, for, for me, it's 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 such sort of um at the same time I can't take my eyes away and it's also really hard to watch and feels <laughs> makes me feel weird like old and shit. Um Well what's also interesting is even then it was two drummers. Yeah, it was then. It was two drummers Eric from Moore is on a, is on another Tom drum or maybe one that was also being used by Michael Cavana, Cavs, I don't know. Yeah. But uh Yeah, yeah. Drum. But it, it was a it was sort of um fluid lineup for a, a long time and it was a also a side project you know for a couple of years at least it was everyone's second project everyone had at least at least one more important band than king gizzard oh um, what was yours well i had a, i had a couple i played in a in a band with lucas and um with Cavs as well called the houses um and we played kind of i don't know it was psychedelic but it was maybe a bit more indie or something uh i also played in a straight up kind of psych band probably biggest influence was the video of santana at woodstock where oh, there's that, I love that. Yeah, yeah me too and um, greatest concert movie ever made and i'm amazed how many people even of my generation let alone a little younger have never seen it well i think i saw that when i was first learning guitar and with this band called al mac and jack that we we played in we just used to watch it over and over again yeah. and we had some other influences of course but i think that was the and if anyone ever asks what we sounded like i always say yeah we we tried really hard to sound like that. <laughs> well, yeah, the, 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 but that that movie, the the editing and what they did with all the different cameras were in Santana. Somebody had a camera only on the hands yeah. of the one or two hand percussionists or the timbales player, and that was it. So every once in a while, they did a lot of split screen or even quadruple screen. You'd see Carlos or one of the others or one of the keyboards, but then you'd see the hands and only the hands from time to time, too. It was just amazing, that kind of stuff. I mean, the two that are my favorite from that, as you might guess, you know, rekindling my Cinderella ambition to try and get on stage and sing or something was um, The Who. Yep. And above all others, Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, yeah, huge. Huge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. huge. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I watched that a lot as a kid. Um, he, he, I should watch it again. Actually, I got to, I got to, I got to watch that again now. Yeah, I, I would say take a poll and see if anybody else in the inner Giz hive has not seen it. Yeah, yeah, and good, have but, everybody and and maybe, just all watch it together. And maybe we'll watch it on tour. We'll watch it on tour. That'd be good. Yeah, there's um, a there's a there's a box set shaped like a drum with a tambourine on top that has hours and hours of outtakes. 
Oh, yeah. Including people who didn't get in or somebody wouldn't sign the contract at the time. Creedence Clearwater was there, who yep. barely remembered as a live band. Johnny Winter was just coming up. The Grateful Dead are there in the middle of the night, and I think they're trying to save power because you can barely even see them. And they got stuck in one of their little rabbit holes where they're kind of grooving on something that to me wasn't that interesting. And about 15 minutes later, I gave up. Yeah. And I couldn't take that anymore. I don't know if you're a deadhead person or not, but um, you know, I I'm mostly not. <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a newer deadhead, Jello. Like I I sort of it it recently clicked, and um, uh. yeah, it's it's funny. This has happened to me a lot of times where we'll be making some music, and a lot of people will say the same thing. They'll say this record that you made sounds like this. And I'll be like, I never listened to that. And then right. I go and listen right. to it because all these people have said so. And I'm like, actually, this is pretty sick, you know. And then it sort of kind of goes around in a, in a weird way. But I think just touring the States a lot, obviously the dead are just culturally significant thing. In Australia, right. the, it's, you know, here we know, here we know the, a few of the hits. I thought they were a country band, you know, like I know the... Yeah. <laughs> Working Man's Dead and the and the and the um, American Beauty studio, some of the studio stuff I would have heard, um, and it's 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 rad. They're great songs, but that was kind of what I like thought. The, the Dead Rock Band early on, under yeah. the name of Warlocks. Too. Yeah, yeah, and I know all that now, but it's it's kind of because touring the states, it would be like like I swear to God, every second person would come up and. and and be like, you guys remind me of the Grateful Dead. I'm like, I've never listened to the Grateful Dead. You know, like, <laughs> it's a coincidence. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then eventually... It's probably a good way to have that infect you after you're already very much got your own thing, or in your case, things down ahead of time. Well, I think, I think when you say the word jam in America, it, it, it specifically means a, a certain style of improvising, which is kind of yeah. influenced by that. And I didn't know that. Because we always said the word jam, and here it just it's it just means improvising. You know, it just means kind of going off the script. And and in America, it means a different thing. Um, right. It especially popped up after Jerry Garcia died, and more bands were trying to be the Grateful Dead. Fish being the next big one. But my old hometown is one of the Boulder is one of the ground zero places for for that. Where you can't go two blocks without bumping into another jam band, if not a bluegrass band, and two of the big ones, maybe more leftover salmon and um, string cheese incident, who are also gigantic gigantic bands now are w without any like much radio play or i hardly ever see card copies of anything they've ever made and they fill basketball arenas or three nights someplace on new year's eve in san francisco or colorado or something and they're it's the jam band scene and i ask people in europe if this goes on there too and they say no it's very so, very interesting it's very specifically american kind of um phenomenon it's it's fascinating. I've I've never listened to really any of the other jam band scene. I've 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 really like I've never been involved or a part of it or understood it at all. But but yeah, very very recently I've kind of it, the the dead clicked. I just figured out that if you um if you find a song that you like, you can kind of listen to a hundred different versions of it, and that's kind of cool to me because I'm the sort of person who when I find a song I like or an album I like, I'm likely to only listen to that for like a few days. 
you know I sort of do that I sort of obsess over things like that and in, right. in a way they're kind of a good band for me because instead of just listening to the same exact recording I can listen to like a hundred different versions of it and it's sort of it's that's pretty cool um, Hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter that's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So did you guys start letting people put out all these different semi-official bootlegs of you because of that, or did that just happen anyway? That also just happened anyway, and I know that that... I mean, you know, I think we we must have picked up on some things related to the dead culture and taping culture accidentally. I do remember that um, very early on, when we were still doing the same set every night and all of that, we would have tapers come to the show. I was always like, what the fuck are they doing? Like, this is weird. We played the same set last night and a taper came to that too. Like, can't they just listen to that? It doesn't make any sense. And then eventually I started feeling kind of sorry for them because these people would kind of come to multiple nights or they'd follow us around or they'd drive in their RV and come to multiple shows. And we do say for a few sections, more or less the same show every night, but they must have seen something in us where we were kind of on some sort of improv tip or something. I don't know. But I started feeling sorry for them. I was like, fuck, we need to kind of put on a bit of a different show for these, these RV crew here, you know, tonight. They've been to the last six shows. But was, was Red Rocks the first time you ever tried three three-hour shows of all different songs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, nothing. We haven't done anything like that. We, we had done, we had experimented quite a few times with, you know, we, 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 we probably would have played three shows in a row without repeating songs, but never three-hour shows each. And we never advertised such. We never did three in one, one place. It was never kind of a thing. It was just in the past it's like, well... We're trying to keep our own brains active as well, trying to ward <laughs> off the dementia and all of that, you know, just trying to keep the brain going. Well, in some ways it rescues me from that. It's like, oh my God, I'm really getting into music again now. Wow, cool. So back, back so left-handed guitar and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I assume you play right-handed with the low E string on top and not on the bottom. Yeah, so... Uh, Was guitar your first instrument? Um, no, actually. Um... I thought guitar was boring because dad played it, um, you know, typical. Um, and maybe I was 10 or 12 or something, and I, I started getting drum lessons, which I loved. I really, really loved. I think I was drawn to the obnoxiousness of drums, maybe, the, the, immediate, the, the immediacy and the loudness, you know, um, of, of all of that. I did love it, but it, it, didn't, it didn't click the same way as as the guitar did there was fortunately for me there was guitars around the house always acoustic but there was there was guitars around around the house and they were all upside down so i sort of just i don't know would from time to time pick them up and oh, what's this thing do or what's this you know what's this weird peg you know what's this string like what sound does it make when you do this sort of thing so sort of maybe had that on my side and but yeah like i said before i i really did get into music before i got into playing music i just something happened and i just became obsessed with music and it was all I really thought about. It was all I really cared about. It was all I really did was just listen to music. Um, so how were your grades? Oh, probably. I, the, thing, the thing with me at school was 
I liked some things in school, but and the things I liked I probably was okay at. But if I decided that something wasn't important, well, I just wouldn't go. Like, I failed heaps of stuff. But it's not because I couldn't do it. Maybe I could if I tried. I just didn't want to. I don't know. So it's... <laughs> It's actually a bad habit. Parents were free enough with you. They didn't just freak out if your grades weren't good. And you had it. I did not have that luxury, nor did I want to have parents who would ever allow me to play drums or <sighs> even guitar unless it was acoustic and I was playing folk songs, which wasn't me. So uh, at least there was still something in there burning inside, so to speak. But meanwhile, after the uh, Royal Melbourne, what is an Institute of Technology or something like, yeah, Institute technology somehow the giz went from a, a, a freelance even well oh, tell me about the, the how how did you rise and get so big from so far under the radar i don't recall hit singles or music videos let alone pepsi commercials or skateboard videos and even when i went to australia and then uh couple times in the 2010s went to record stores i never saw any of your records and nobody mentioned you and yet by the time i finally get the mind fuzz album oh my god they're playing in town they're playing there they're that big how did this happen and uh how did this happen i mean it it feels like we we did one little step at a time it feels like that we also never did anything commercial, I mean, on purpose. A, it felt like we didn't want to or didn't care about that right, shit. Right, And but B, I don't think anyone was around? interested. In, and B, I don't think anyone was interested anyway. Our music's always been kind of weird and hard to put down and we're all pretty vagrant, vagabond types. No one wants to put us on a Pepsi commercial. doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, more to the point, how, do all, how did all these people find out about you? It's not as though your following isn't growing by leaps and bounds either. We, is it I mean, all internet? Is it all social media or what? I don't know. Really, I don't know. But I will. Uh, all I know is that we have played a lot of shows. We've pretty much constantly toured as much as we can afford to and also our lives will permit before we go insane, really, as much as we can over the last 12 years or whatever it's been now. And we've really just made as much music as we can. It's it's really all we've done. You're very good at that. <laughs> Thanks. Crazy good at that. But uh, we'll get to a little more of that in a minute. But even even so, very small. I mean, Willoughby's Beach, your first vinyl release, was started out as a 300 copy edition, 10 inch. And yeah. you know, what was it? The next one? What was a 12 bar bruise? It was in the pizza box. Oh yeah. And and uh, not very many of those. And then somehow. Kaboom! And even now, or especially I noticed this when they did the San Francisco shows and the Flightless had just reissued all these earlier albums, that um, a lot of them were limited editions of 3,000, 5,000, or is that just one edition and you'd sell tens of thousands more of them? I don't know. I mean, I think if you looked at any one of our individual records, they're not huge selling pressings or anything. Um, but there are fucking fair few of them now. So a fair few albums out there. I guess it all adds up. We've made enough money to just pay the bills and tour and travel and see the world and meet people and make music with our best mates. And that's kind of the way I've really thought of it. Um, it's been, it's, it's truly, truly strange when people turn up to the show. 
you know, like anyone turns up, uh, I'm sure you can kind of like relate to how it feels when you turn up to a city that you haven't been to before and there's people there. It's like, how the fuck did they get here? How do they know who we are? This is weird. I guess like my answer to your question is I've, I've no idea. You know, I've no idea really. Because also, you know, you had this self-contained hive, this self-contained machine. You didn't have some big showbiz manager. You had your own studio, your own label, your own management, all in-house. One guy doing the art, and I believe the film, too, and the lights. Doesn't Jason do all of that? Yeah, Jace, Jace has done uh, all of our album covers, a lot of our music videos, um, pretty much most of the, any iconography or anything you could would kind of vis- visually sort of group with King is is, is Jace. Um, he also travels with us and does the um, projections right. and the screen and, yeah, yeah. and all of that yeah. show, which is just... Insa- like insanely amazing as well and such a such a unique thing it's it's so jason it's crazy oh yeah yeah but i just was you know even in 2019 i was like oh my god they've got this whole huge operation and these these other killer bands on flight list there's all these things going on and the band is the boss it's not the and the people working back in melbourne were working for you guys and somehow you you kept it all together and stuff i was i'm just still amazed by that i know there's been some changes and we'll get to that you know and uh you went from the garage stuff and then uh eyes like the sky proper album number two i'm gonna go through some of those now too um where uh i think it was joey who alluded to a band we're working with now called spindrift oh yeah as a major inspiration for that particular project, complete with what I guess might be a cowboy poet or author of stories doing the vocals and the narration about the American West, not the Australian. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, it, it makes me feel old thinking, thinking about all that stuff because we were, I mean, between 18 and 21, I guess, when we made that album, we were kids. Wow. And, and it, it, it felt like a logical genre to explore or a logical sound to go for, which in hindsight is, is bizarre. But I think we were listening to a lot of spaghetti Western stuff. I've always been a fan of like Morricone and all of that kind of thing and surf music as well, which yeah. kind of bleeds into that, you know, watching cowboy movies and, and everything <laughs> as well. It made sense. It was like, I don't know, I think um, someone had shown shown me Spindrift at some point as well. And I was like, this is really cool. This is, this is really sick. And I think I just thought that other people made music like that too. But not many people do. <laughs> so we just, made a, we just made an album like that without thinking about it too much. If I ever saw them, they were more of a space rock band. Right. There's a little bit of Native American stuff going on and the, the discovery of Morricone and they went way far down that rabbit hole before I kind of helped coax them out of it and they made <laughs> their their Sykesploitation Lava Lamp album for us, which still has plenty of their Morricone-inspired stuff on it, too. They, they think it's their best record, and I think so, too. Right. And, uh, okay, ne- next, I believe it's next, was Float Along, Fill Your Lungs, and at least the 
flightless reissue, you did like very friendly person-to-person -person liner notes on a lot of these signed love stew at the end, which is they may be part of your appeal too. Is you know you're nice people on top of it all as well. So uh, you know that and people get that. But float along, fill your lungs. Your liner notes said this is the record where we started to play together for the first time. What did you mean by that? How you were not? How were you not playing together before then? I think um, in uh, for the, for all the records before this, it was it was very much um, someone usually me and increasingly the other guys, but at least at the start it was usually me would come in, come in with a constructed song and this, and I'd say this is how it all goes and we'd we'd play it. And but a lot of it was overdubbed and that sort of thing too. And there was no really no real listening to each other. It's sort of people playing their parts and you sort oh, of overdub overdubbing at different times. So yeah, overdubbing at different times. I mean, it was recorded like some of both um, Willoughby's Beach and um, and Twelve Bar Brews were recorded live to a degree, but a lot of things were overdubbed as well. It was just constructed like a recording, I suppose. Like right. it was just what we did or how those records were made and when we played live we played our parts and we're playing in you know fucking tiny spaces and we had no idea how to communicate with sound engineers or anything and you can't kind of anything kind of anything like anything and you know it's you just I am fucking up, yeah you just up there fucking making noise and you hope that it sounds good for the audience because it sounds shit for you, you know, and you just, right, you just cross right. your fingers and hope for the best. And I think when we got to this record, we started to uh, set up with, um, set up a little bit quieter, um, try and listen to each other, uh, try and improvise a bit. You know, Head on Pill, the first song on there is, is a huge improvisation, really, on just one chord. Um, Oh, was, so, it, was that the first time you tapped into the Hawkwind vein? I didn't get to re-listen to 12-bar blues before we got here tonight. I think I probably had heard Hawkwind before. I definitely was listening to um, a lot of Noi and, like, other kind of Krautrocky stuff that has that endless groove. I don't remember being into Hawkwind until a little later. Um, I think Hawkwind was definitely an influence over Nonagon Infinity, Definitely, definitely for sure. Um, because I remember listening to it in the studio when we were making it, when we were warming up or when we were setting up and stuff. Yeah, I assume you record and, and mix real quick too. Um, it depends. It depends. Like we've had, I'd say most of our records still take from sort of genesis to completion two years, really, most of the time, um, which I, I think is probably pretty typical of of most bands and artists and songwriters and I still think that's just about how long it takes but I think we usually have got a couple on the go and they've right. got overlap and, and sometimes we'll be in a really intensive period where we're just focusing on one but that right. usually is only going to last a month or maybe two at a time. It was a float along or was it Mind Fuzz? I think it was Mind Fuzz. The next one where the, the, the different places recording some of it you recorded it with Daptone. Oh yeah. The Daptone studio. Yeah, so we we were um we were fans of of Daptone and just all the like amazing soul music they were making. I guess not in a way that was necessarily influencing us musically, but definitely sonically. Those records sounded fucking amazing and so cool. And I think particularly at this time, actually, you know, now too, uh, more or less, we weren't listening to any modern music at all. We were listening to music from the '60s primarily. And probably until 
about 19, I don't know, late until the late 70s maybe is what we are listening to at the time. We had a narrow, narrow, like, sort of sliver of influence. Well, not narrow because so many amazing things were going on and music changed so much. It sure did. the early 1960s to the late 1960s and then again until in the late 70s when it was dying out, then I come on the scene yeah. and really depressed until yeah. punk and then oh i wasn't born too late i was born at the perfect time and then again there were so many things coming out at once you never knew what was coming next gang of four yeah. Bauhaus, bad brains mission of burma and even some people were playing strict surf instrumentals again which hadn't been done since the early 60s and much 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 more cool time and and, he, it, and i think it was that one or maybe one of the next one oh yeah this was recorded here and then this and, and this was recorded by one member on his phone in his hotel room and then this was this this was that and the ones that were recorded on a phone don't sound like they were just recorded on a little phone or something it all still fits as a full sounding album and things i think at this time very good at that. <laughs> with 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 mind fuzz and and quarters and and even to a degree nonagon infinity and 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 oddments and float along feelings and the records at this time the main mode of experimentation was recording and it was sonic it was and that's why we were attracted to daptone and that's 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 kind of why we well we're very lucky to get to work there actually we had a we had a friend in an australian band who was in um this band umi i don't know if you ever remember them no i don't um but um he was working there and and we happened to be in new york and i was like rusty can we record at daptone and he's like that would be pretty random, but you know, I'll see what I can, I'll see what I'll see what I can do. And he managed to tee up a recording session, and it was pretty cool. We got to know a few of the crew in there, and had such an amazing time. But yeah, but again, it was yeah. it was just we were attracted to the sound and working with tape machines and like all this old gear and all this old stuff, which just yeah. felt so science fiction. And you're just inside a massive spaceship or something well part of it also oh here's one from the phone this is going on oh here's one from daptone your refusal to limit yourselves genre wise sonically or anything else is a major part of the beauty of what you guys put together thanks jello yeah ultimately so i also noticed um up to and kind of in even through through there you weren't really paying that much attention to the lyrics some of the very early songs have one line for the whole song or something and kind of a lot of lysergic stream of consciousness stuff and the occasional she done me wrong one or two sentences and it didn't seem till that it was paper mache dream balloon where you want a completely different direction i think from uh, Mind Fuzz, can't remember. I kind of got two piles of these at home. <laughs> the ones I really, really liked and the ones I wasn't as into right off the bat. And I can't remember which one that was in, but I. But that was when the lyrics first started to focus on bigger things and more writing and seemed like trying to write better and be more conscious of what was coming out of there and it was and then next album one of my favorites of course was the mike Fly, flying microtonal banana album which is when your 
eco-disaster songs began, it seems. You know, with, you know, very, very aware of how much danger our planet is in, and then all kinds of different worst-case scenarios, sometimes science fiction-y imagination things going on. And it just kind of grew from there, lyrically. But of course, why it's called a flying microtonal banana is a picture of one of your guitars on there. I guess one of three and only three you own or something. We've talked about this a lot, but what are microtones? I guess a microtone is is a note inside a note or a note between a note or a or a, a a pitch that's between two of our regular western pitches which are usually stuck together and i guess in in um western music um in western culture we we have 12 fixed pitches then they repeat but in other cultures that's not the case the 12 is isn't sacred you know there's some benefits of 12 and there's some reasons why we landed on 12, but it doesn't mean that it's the only way that you can write music. And, and I do really think that we're limited by only having the 12 and by, by only having exposure to 12. Um, and that's not to say that, I mean, I'm, I make heaps of music in just, just 12 tone equal temperament, which is what microtonal nerds like me would call it. Um, it's, it's great and it's practical and, and stuff, but um, there's, just, there's just worlds and worlds and worlds of sonic opportunities out there and right. we kind of we kind of uh fitted retrofitted some um instruments to do 24 tones a, an octave which means that there's a note exactly in between 50 percent in between every single re- like if we want to call it a regular note and i like i like 24 actually and there are there there are an infinite amount of tuning possibilities but but i like right, 24 so, actually so is this straight shall we say mid-eastern scale or is that something else again we were influenced by turkish music um and i think the crossover was there was a lot of amazing psychedelic turkish music from the 70s that we were listening to and then it it clicked that they that part of the sound was that it wasn't it wasn't tuned to western instruments or it wasn't and it it clicked and i was like that's why i like it that's why it sounds so exotic I need to figure out how to do that. A, a friend of mine who uh, lived, li- uh, who I met in Colorado even before punk or anything, we're still close friends, and he be- he became a master engineer, producer, and guitar player, keyboards, and pretty damn good at that too. And one day I walk into his little basement studio, and there was an instrument like nothing I'd ever seen before. Oh yeah, I got that in Turkey. I think it was a saz. Sick. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And he said, and he said he picked it up and started playing around with it. Oh yeah, and this note, this note, this note, this note are not even in a Western scale. It's only here that I can play this note. Yeah, and 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 I will I will say that um, Turkish music isn't in isn't in twenty four tones an octave. We had to pick. Yeah, that was my question. Yeah. So we we had to pick a tuning which felt practical for us to make a record together. You know, and and also I we we just had to pick we had to pick one. Um, but uh, it's so I don't know. We're some sort of bastardized, fucking, you know, some sort of weird wrong thing that we're doing. But um, it felt right to us at the time. I like twenty four because you have the original twelve, which to a Western ear sound in tune, and then you have twelve, which are the most out of tune possible because they're the most exactly in between, you know, the the other twelve. And I like that. I like that ability to be really in tune and really out of tune at the same time. So anyway, 
24 is cool. So did so so the one that looks like one of those EKO Echo brand guitars that the Italians made in the 60s, the the beige one, the flying banana if you will. And Joey had something similar. I finally realized with all these frets that I didn't see on normal guitars, they usually were playing them at the same time. And the Middle Eastern inspired stuff cuz you play it so heavy a lot of the time is my second favorite side of your sound from the full-on blasting Hawkwindy space rock and stuff. That's my second favorite. And those were usually the guitars there. Did you build those yourselves? No, we didn't. Um, we had a, I, I had a very serendipitous moment. Um, I was starting to kind of get into this microtonal, I was starting to go down the microtonal rabbit hole. I didn't really know what I was doing. It felt like I'd discovered something which no one else knew about. I felt like I was on some conspiracy theory tip or something. It was like, shouldn't everyone know about this? This is crazy. I went to music school. No one told me about this. What the fuck? <laughs> you know, it was like that. And yeah, I had this sort of serendipitous moment where I was actually at a show. I was just at the pub and a guy who I hadn't met before, who's who's now become a, a bit of a friend, he, um, he, he approached me and said, oh, I make guitars. Can I make one for you? I like your band. And I was like, fuck yeah, that's unbelievable. No one's ever said that to me before. That's so cool. Of course, like I will never turn down on a guitar. That's amazing. And then I got chatting and I was like, do you know what? I'm kind of obsessed with this microtonal thing at the moment. Do you think we could, you think we'd make it microtonal? And he was like, I have no idea what that means, but let me do some research. And, and so we sort of had to come up with a fretting arrangement it actually is based on a SARS um, because I'd bought a I'd bought a SARS in Turkey maybe six months before that when I was on vacation over there and was playing it at home and having a lot of fun with it but it's a 20 it's again bastardized but it's a 24 24 fret and octave version of a SARS um, yeah we just we had to change the fretting arrangement a few times to kind of get it right a bit of trial and error but um but yeah once once we had this guitar in hand it was it, it might have been the maybe the most inspired I've ever felt, I think, in my whole life. It was just like, instantly, it was just like, as soon as the guitar was in my hands, it was just like the ideas were just, it was just so easy. It, it, it was like, I know how to play guitar, so I've kind of got this leg up on it. And I've been listening to all this kind of like Turkish and, and by this time kind of Persian music and Arabic music and Indian music and stuff. And, and so it was just like I had a new, um, it's like I could see a new color. It's like I was painting with the with all wow. these n new paintbrushes, you know. It's just the coolest thing. And so does Cookie have one too? The three of us all, all have one. When we and made does Lukey that, Lukey have to have a special base for this, or can Lukey has a base too? And we uh -huh. we've worked out over the years a few different ways to tune keyboards and stuff too. And and Ambrose right. has a few specially tuned harmonicas as well. Um, Me too. All the benefits of not, because I, I read an interview with Joey where there's all kinds of music theory stuff in there, you know, especially on the, uh, you know, the Lava, Magma, whatever album and stuff. We'll get to that. But I was like, God, I, I don't want to think about this when I listen to the Giz or any other band. It just is. That's, that's the, you know, the same as music obsessions you had as a kid till now. Same deal. So I, I must compliment you for being that schooled 
in those things and not letting music theory get in your way. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I actually, um, the, mu- the, the music school he went to wasn't wasn't a, really a music school. It was it was kind of an arts degree. Well, let, um, let's hold that thought for a minute because we've hit on about the one hour mark. Oh yeah, this cool. Is come out at a part one and a part two, and okay. who knows what else if we keep going. So stay tuned for the next hour, boys, girls, and those who identify otherwise. Animal, vegetable, mineral and we will be back. We'll be right back. 